Section 11 of Reminiscences and Table Talk of Samuel Rogers. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. In former days, Cuyp's pictures were comparatively little valued. He was the first artist who painted light, and therefore he was not understood. Sir William Beechey was at a picture sale with Wilson, when one of Cuyp's pictures was knocked down for a trifling sum. Well, said Wilson, the day will come when both Coop's works and my own will bring the prices which they ought to bring. Sir Thomas Lawrence used to say that among painters there were three preeminent for invention, Giorgione, Rembrandt and Rubens. And perhaps he was right. Sir Thomas Lawrence has painted several very pleasing pictures of children, but generally his men are effeminate and his women meretricious. Of his early portrait, Sir Joshua Reynolds said, This young man has a great deal of talent, but there is an affectation in his style which he will never entirely shake off. We have now in England a greater number of tolerably good painters than ever existed here together in any former period. But alas, we have no Hogarth and no Reynolds. I must not, however, forget that we have Turner, a man of first-rate genius in his line. There is in some of his pictures a grandeur which neither Claude nor Poussin could give to theirs. Turner thinks that Rubens's landscapes are deficient in nature. I differ from him. Indeed, there, in square brackets, on the wall of Mr. Rogers's dining-room, is a proof that he is mistaken. Look at that forest seen by Rubens. The foreground of it is truth itself. The art union is a perfect curse. It buys and engraves very inferior pictures and consequently encourages mediocrity of talent. It makes young men who have no genius abandon the desk and counter and set up for painters. The public gave little encouragement to Flaxman and Banks but showered its patronage on two much inferior sculptors, Bacon and Chantry. Nestor Flaxman, the greatest sculptor of his day, the neglect which he experienced as something inconceivable. Canova, who was well acquainted with his exquisite illustrations of Dante, etc., could hardly believe that a man of such genius was not an object of admiration amongst his countrymen, and in allusion to their insensibility to Flaxman's merits and to their patronage of inferior artists, he said to some of the English at Rome, You see with your ears. Chantry began his career by being a carver in wood. The ornaments on that mahogany sideboard and on that stand, in square brackets in Mr. Rogers's dining room, were carved by him. Footnote. Subsequently, when a gentleman informed Mr. Rogers that the truth of this last statement had been questioned, he entered into the following particulars. Chantry said to me one day, Do you recollect that about twenty-five years ago a journeyman came to your house from the woodcarver employed by you and Mr. Hope to talk about these ornaments, and that you gave him a drawing to execute them by? I replied that I recollected it perfectly. Well, continued Chantry, I was that journeyman. End of footnote. When he was at Rome in the height of his celebrity, he injured himself not a little by talking with contempt 
of the finest statues of antiquity. Jackson, the painter, told me that he and Chantry went into the studio of Dunnecker, the sculptor, who happened to be from home. There was an unfinished bust in the room, and Chantry, taking up a chisel, proceeded to work upon it. One of the assistants immediately rushed forwards in great alarm to stop him, but no sooner had Chantry given a blow on the chisel than the man exclaimed with a knowing look, Ha ha! as much as to say, I see that you perfectly understand what you are about. Chantry practised portrait painting, both at Sheffield and after he came to London. It was an allusion to him that Lawrence said, a broken-down painter will make a very good sculptor. Otley's knowledge of painting was astonishing. Showing him a picture which I had just received from Italy, I said, Whose work do you suppose it to be? After looking at it attentively, he replied, it is the work of Lorenzo de Credi, by whom I already knew that it was painted. How, I asked, could you discover it to be from Lorenzo's pencil? Have you ever before now seen any of his pieces? Never, he answered, but I am familiar with the description of his style as given by Vasari and others. I regret that so little of Curran's brilliant talk has been preserved. How much of it Tom Moore could record if he would only take the trouble? I once dined with Curran in the public room of the chief inn at Greenwich, when he talked a great deal, and as usual, with considerable exaggeration, speaking of something which he would not do on any inducement, he exclaimed vehemently, I had rather be hanged upon twenty gibbets. Don't you think, sir, that one would be enough for you? said a girl a stranger who was sitting at the table next to us. I wish you could have seen Curran's face. He was absolutely confounded, struck dumb. Very few persons know that the poem called Ulm and Trafalgar was written by Canning. He composed it, as George Ellis told me, in about two days, while he walked up and down the room. Indeed, very few persons know that such a poem exists. After Legg was appointed Bishop of Oxford, he had the folly to ask two wits, Canning and Freer, to be present at his first sermon. Well, said he to Canning, how did you like it? Oh, I thought it was rather short. Oh, yes, I'm aware that it was short, but I was afraid of being tedious. You were tedious. A lady, having put to Canning the silly question, have they made the spaces in the iron gate at Spring Gardens so narrow? He replied, Oh, ma'am, because such very fat people used to go through. A reply concerning which Tom Moore said that the person who does not relish it can have no perception of real wit. Canning said that a man who could talk of liking dry champagne would not scruple to say anything. The Duke of York told me that Dr. Cyril Jackson most conscientiously did his duty as tutor to himself and his brother, the Prince of Wales. Jackson, said the Duke, used to have a silver pencil case in his hand while we were at our lessons, and he has frequently given us such knocks with it upon our foreheads that the blood followed them. 
I have often heard the Duke relate how he and his brother George, when young men, were robbed by footpads on Hay Hill. They had dined that day at Devonshire House, had then gone home to lay aside their court dresses, and afterwards proceeded to a house of a certain description in the neighbourhood of Berkeley Square. They were returning from it in a hackney coach late at night, when some footpads stopped them on Hay Hill and carried off their purses, watches, etc. In his earlier days, the Duke of York was most exact in paying all his debts of honour. One night at Brooks's, while he was playing cards, he said to Lord Thanet, who was about to go home to bed, Lord Thanet, is our betting still to continue? Yes, sir, certainly, was the reply. And next morning, Lord Thanet found fifteen hundred pounds left for him at Brooks's by the Duke. But gradually he became less particular in such matters, and at last he would quietly pocket the winnings of the night from Lord Robert Spencer, though he owed Lord Robert about five thousand pounds. I have several times stayed at Oatlands with the Duke and Duchess of York, both of them most amiable and agreeable persons. We were generally a company of about fifteen, and our being invited to remain there another day sometimes depended on the ability of our royal host and his hostess to raise sufficient money for our entertainment. We used to have all sorts of ridiculous fun as we roamed about the grounds. The Duchess kept, besides a number of dogs, for which there was a regular burial place, a collection of monkeys, each of which had its own pole with a house at top. One of the visitors, whose name I forget, would single out a particular monkey and play to it on the fiddle with such fury and perseverance that the poor animal, half distracted, would at last take refuge in the arms of Lord Alvanley. Monk Lewis was a great favourite at Oatlands. One day after dinner, as the Duchess was leaving the room, she whispered something into Lewis's ear. He was much affected, his eyes filling with tears. We asked what was the matter. Ah, oh, replied Lewis, the Duchess spoke so very kindly to me. My dear fellow, said Colonel Armstrong, pray don't cry. I dare say she didn't mean it. End of section 11